Welcome to Mojo Moments. I'm your host, Thane Calder. Now, we are still knee-deep in COVID. And let's be honest, I live in a microcosm of comfort and privilege and in no way represent the reality of what so many other people who are scrambling to make ends meet while staying safe have to live. But in my world of Zooming on Zoom, and for many folks that I interact in this little world, our biggest thing that we're missing during this pandemic is travel. You know, picnic by the vineyard in Tuscany, walking the steps of Montmartre in Paris, hanging out with monkeys in Costa Rica, getting wacky at Coachella. I mean, whatever your travel thing is, when people think travel, people think mojo. So today we're going to talk about travel mojo. And to boost our chat, we're going to talk with a travel guru and expert. His name is Charlie Scott. Who is Charlie? Well, he's a travel entrepreneur, a master traveler. He spent 25 years of his life in the travel world, not in the hotel business, but in the real travel. Even though he hails from a teeny town in Quebec, he's lived in Morocco, India, France, Bali. He's a founder of a travel advising company called DWE, which is Say Yes. He's prior to that, he co-founded a high-end travel company called Truffle Pig. They would essentially sniff out the best places to go in the world. And he also worked with the luxury outfitter called Butterfield and Robinson. He actually wrote the book for the founder, George Butterfield, etc., etc. This guy has travel chops through and through. So listen up. So, Charlie, you know why we're here? I think so. You want a tech support, right? <laughs> no. Wrong podcast, dude. You are on the Mojo Moments podcast, okay. Charlie Scott. Okay. The world famous okay. podcast. So, welcome aboard. Thank you. And you know why we're here? I think you wanted to talk about relationship travel or relationships. No, 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 not relationship. No, I'm not going to you for relationships. They're the same thing. That's the other podcast, but you'll have to uh, change your name. Okay. Okay. So, Charlie Scott, what are you doing these days, bro? I am in Knowlton, an hour outside of Montreal in the country, in a little village where you are. And I'm in, doing a bunch of things, renovating a, an old house and uh, doing a bunch of various consulting projects, walking the dog doing a bit of skiing, a bit of this, a bit of that. <laughs> so, so for Mr. Worldliness, and I did this intro that I didn't include you on because then you get all embarrassed because I, I play you up, man. You're like the master okay. guru traveler. But okay. with all your worldliness of travel, now you're back in the little tiny town that you've grown up in years ago. What is it weird? Is it good? What's it like? The only thing that's weird about it is that it doesn't feel that weird. And if you had told me a year ago that we'd be here, living here at this time of year, I would have said, no, I, you know, maybe in 10 years. And the idea of living here a year ago was pretty weird and very abstract and really hard to imagine. And here we are now, and it feels like the most normal thing. And it feels, it doesn't feel weird. It feels weirdly exotic in a way. And even though it's a very familiar place that I've known since I was 10, um, everything feels a little different. And I don't know if that's because the world is weird. And so this feels normal and, you know, cozy. Or if it's because I am coming back to a place that I know really well after having, you know, left many, many years ago. I don't know. But it, it, it doesn't feel that weird to answer your question. Well, tell me, where were you just before in Little Knowlton, Quebec? So immediately before, we were living in Bali, and we were there until April, and then we came back at the beginning of April. So from Bali to Quebec. Bali to Quebec, B to C. B to Q, B to Q, C for Canada. So I, I play you up as travel guru, and those aren't your words, those are mine. Um but what makes you travel? Like, what's your pedigree? You know, like, make your case, man. Uh, well, I've never sold myself as a travel guru, um, but I do know travel pretty well, and I love travel. So I, uh, I growing up, 
it's worth mentioning, I didn't actually travel that much or nothing very exciting. You know, Banff National Park, which is great, and um, the Laurentians, which is great. But I didn't leave Canada until I was, I think, 16 or 17 and at a, a school exchange to France. And then as soon I got a, a taste for travel, and I kind of swore that as soon as I finished university, I would take off and go backpacking in Europe. And I don't know if it was because I was really keen to go backpacking or because I wasn't sure if I would actually get a degree. I left as soon as the last class was done and took off and backpacked around Europe for three or four months and totally, totally loved it and thought, I need to do more of this, but I should probably grow up and get a real job. So at the end of that backpacking, I reluctantly came back to Canada and moved to Vancouver where I decided I was going to go into the investment world. And <laughs> I know, I know, in Vancouver. And I started interviewing and I got really close with one job and I woke up the next day in cold sweats and thought, if they offer me a job, it's going to feel really awful. And so I thought, maybe that's a sign that it's not really the career for me. So I stayed in Vancouver for another year and worked as a bellhop and parking valet and saved money. And then it was actually your brother who was staying on our couch. And he said in passing, oh, you should go guide bike trips in France. And I, I said, but guide, what do you mean? What is that? How do you do that? Why? What? And so he explained that there was a job where you could go to France and you could guide bike trips and you could stay in beautiful hotels and eat great food and have fun and ride your bike all day and get paid. And I thought that is what I need to do, <laughs> at least at least for six months or three months. It's kind of the test. If anyone so, said no to that, you'd be like, okay. Uh, yeah, it was, the, it was the perfect job on paper. And, and then I went and I did it, and it turned out that it was actually the perfect job in reality. So any ideas or aspirations of going into finance evaporated for good. And before I knew it, I was kind of hooked on this thing, not just in sort of a, a uh, vacation sense, but in a professional sense. And I stayed in travel for, and I guess I'm still in travel, but I was kind of actively full-time in travel for the next, I don't know, 20, 25 years. It's interesting because in my little intro thing, before you being on here, I, I, I set you up as guru traveler, but not the traveler type that worked in, in, in hotels. But I forgot you started out in Vancouver. Your actual first real job in yeah. the travel industry was as yes. a bellhop. Yeah. And I remember something about your park, your first day parking yeah. can you tell that story because <laughs> yeah actually i'll tell you two stories they're, and they're connected but they're kind of a fun example of how uh strangely small the world can be so the first story my very first day working as a bellhop and parking valet at the wedgwood hotel in vancouver i was taking cars up and down you know valet parking and and it was great fun and most of the cars were automatic, which was strange for me because I'd always grown up where we had manual cars, standard transmission cars. So my brain somehow over the course of the night started getting confused between manual transmission and automatic. And towards the end of the night, when I was probably a little tired, I went down to get a car and I started it. And as soon as I took my foot off what I thought was the brake, the car just like lurched forward. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And to make a long story short, I had confused. It was a automatic car. So it was a standard car. I thought it was automatic. And the car rolled in the parking lot. Um, it sort of jumped out of its stall and rolled into the back of another car. And I smashed the hood and some lights. And so I went upstairs and told the duty manager. And as you can imagine, I'm totally like... Can I say shitting myself? Mm -hmm. You can say whatever you scared. This is, okay. We're not, we're and, not CBC. I thought, oh my God, how do you, I thought, how do you screw this up? Your very, very first day on the job. So I went up and I, I thought, I'll just be totally honest. I explained to the guy what had happened. 
And the last question he asked me was, were there any other cars involved? And I said, no. And then I, I remembered that there actually was, but I hadn't done any damage to it. So I explained that I had rolled into the back of a Toyota Land Cruiser that had such a big steel bumper that I didn't cause any damage to it. And he started laughing like crazy. And I'm like, what is going on? And you know, it turns out that it was his car or his Toyota Land Cruiser that I'd rolled into. And he said, uh, he thought it was re really funny. Um, I recovered and returned to work the next day and ended up working there for another nine months. And from there forward was extremely careful about whether it was manual or automatic transmission. I love that because you pride yourself on your driving skills. That <laughs> yeah. Was... So the second part of that story, though, so that yeah. was in uh, nineteen ninety. Three, and so flash forward uh, till two thousand and probably eight, two thousand seven, and I was trying to put a trip together in California in the Napa Valley, and I had contacted this really small, really beautiful little hotel called Poetry Inn, and I hadn't been there, and I'd read about it, and it sounded great, and so I thought and I had these really special clients, so it had to be perfect. So I called the hotel and I thought I'll call and speak to the manager, you know, and, and see if I can arrange a visit in advance of the trip. So I called him and I'm speaking to this guy, the manager. And the whole time I'm thinking, I know that voice. I know that voice. And it was this really distinct English accent. And sort of halfway through the call, I said, this is kind of a long shot. But in 1993, did you own a Land Cruiser? And the guy started laughing. And it was the manager of the Wedgwood <laughs> who was now working in Napa Valley. So did he remember you later, from I, whacking his car? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good yeah. way of starting and, it. Uh, so, <laughs> so a month later, I went down to do research for this trip and uh, we went out and had some drinks and had a and great time. And stayed away from the car, yeah. right? And and I, I took a bus or bike or something. So you, you did all the bike tour uh travel tour stuff with butterfield and robinson so you, when you really got into the travel thing yeah. uh then you started a uh a company which i still think is the best name ever the truffle pig like what was the the essence of truffle pig what were you doing there what was the essence of our business yeah so the essence of the business was i guess on the surface what we were doing is we were planning high-end custom trips so that's pretty simple. People would call us and say, I really want to go to New Zealand. I want to find out how to shear a sheep. I'm really into red wine. I want to go sailing on an America's Cup yacht. And I like fancy hotels, for example. And we would put a custom trip together based on them, their interests, and the ingredients that we had found in New Zealand based on our research. So that was kind of what we did. But the, the spirit of the company was really playing on the whole metaphor of the truffle pig. So uh, you may or may not know that truffles are like a kind of fungus that grow underground. And they grow in a lot of places, but we usually think of it as France and Italy. And so these truffles that are uh, fungus, kind of like a mushroom, hard mushroom, about the size of a you know, marble or golf ball, they grow anywhere from six inches to a foot or more underground. And there's nothing above ground that tells you they're there. There are no leaves. There's no nothing. And the only hint that they're there is a chemical that the truffle emits that is almost exactly the same as a pheromone that pigs emit when they're, uh, I don't know, in heat. So the, the pigs are used by farmers to go into the woods to find the truffles because the pigs have a very acute sense of smell and they can walk through the woods where there's apparently nothing. And in this scrubby dry landscape, they can smell the exact spot where truffles are growing. And then the farmer pulls the pig back, digs up the truffle, takes the truffle, goes to the market and sells it for a whack load of money. Yeah. So the whole metaphor of us as a truffle pig or us as a tool to help people find the things that are 
really hard to find and that are simultaneously really precious and super valuable and luxurious, but also very earthy and very real and very pungent. That's what we did. So we, our trips tended to be high end, but it wasn't that we were excited to just go to a country and, you know, drink champagne uh, and stay in fancy hotels. That wasn't the idea of the trip. That was a comfort level that our clients expected, and many of them actually needed to feel comfortable in a foreign country. But the thing that they wanted from us was the texture of the place and the sense of the place that would really help connect them to the spirit of wherever they were, Barcelona, you know, the Sahara, wherever it might be. So that's what we did. We basically connected the dots. I, I love travel too. And um, interestingly, like the things that are the, like the, you know, you listed there, the New Zealand, I didn't do New Zealand, but you know, the good hotel and, oh yeah, I got to go and do this and that. But I got to say the stuff I remember when I travel is usually the stuff that are not planned for, you know, the serendipic mm-hmm. stuff that takes place. Like, yeah. Is that just me or is that a truism in, in, in good experiences and travel? I think that's most people. I think, you know, there is the, there's a physical aspect or a tangible aspect to travel that we can't ignore or deny. And that is everybody has a threshold or a level of need for a certain comfort. And at Truffle Pig, behind the scenes, we would just call it our fancyometer. So, Some people need hotels and restaurants and cars or flights that are super fancy. That's what they're used to. That's what they're comfortable with, whatever. And that's fine. And then other people are less fussed and they, their fanciometer might be a little bit lower scale in that they don't need a gigantic room. They don't need, you know, 11 rain shower heads. They just need great service. And so Regardless, that that fancyometer, I think everybody has. All of our clients had it, and they all varied. And anybody I know who travels has it. But the reason they travel, they I think a lot of people think they're traveling because they want to go stay in a great hotel in the Bahamas. But I don't actually think that's the real reason. I think the deeper reason is they want to break familiarity, and they want to go somewhere that's going to sure relax them but it's going to excite them in some way and challenge them in some way you know physically or intellectually so i think the thing when we think back to travel yeah we do remember the hotels and the restaurants for sure but really what we're usually remembering even with those physical things is something more kind of esoteric and it's the the chef at the restaurant who comes out to meet you or it's the service at the hotel. Um, I just was writing a, uh, a an Instagram post about a hotel in London called the Connaught or the Connaught, and it's a it's Connaught actually. Connaught. I'm, I'm just saying that. Well, because I'm thinking of Connaught Place, Connaught Place in New Delhi. I don't know. I think they say the Connaught. I always get it wrong. <laughs> so this hotel has been around for a long time. And it's a um, it's a it's a very fancy hotel, so it's expensive and it's got nice sheets and all that stuff. But the thing that I remember about it is the way they treat you and the way that they made me feel. So what I was writing about when I uh, wrote this thing the other day was uh, I've never had a hotel that made me feel like a gentleman, and that's kind of a pretty abstract thing that you would travel for. Like if I asked you, why are you going to London? I doubt you would say, because I want to feel like a gentleman. You would say, oh, I want to go to check out some you know, museums and galleries. I want to do some shopping. But I think there are always, when it comes to travel, there are things that drive us aspirations to feel a certain way in an environment um, that we might not be able to get at home. And staying at that hotel, which I'd always wanted to stay at, And I'd always wanted to stay there because I heard it was really fancy and really, you know, beautiful. And it is, but that's not what I most remember about it. I remember the, the way the staff treated me and, you know, arriving at breakfast. And by the second day, they knew exactly what I liked for breakfast in what order and what newspaper. 
And without any fanfare or fuss, they would just like bring it. And they would speak to me as an equal and not as sort of a, you know, kowtowing servant. And but just uh, that sort of human element of it is what made it so special. Yeah, a few years ago, I, I uh, was lucky to go with my family and we went for a month to, uh, to Buenos Aires and then to Uruguay. My son had a sailing thing down there. And you put me in touch with a, uh, a, a, a kind of a local guide they kind of organize some, you know, the things you need to do in Buenos Aires, eat a great steak, uh, do some tango, all those things. But she threw in there, knowing this age of our kids, this big part of Buenos Aires is street art. And we actually went and discovered yeah. street art and actually did some spray painting. Like, you don't find yeah. that in a, you know, in a classic guidebook. This is what you should do. When you, but that with, you know, between me and the kids remains one of those super super memorable moments like and what were we doing we are on yeah in a back alley <laughs> right <laughs> spray painting on a wall that was a highlight yeah yeah and the thing that's so cool about that you know we in a sense i feel badly that i've defined much of my career in travel or much of my professional career in travel in high-end travel because i don't i love beautiful hotels for sure and beautiful places but I don't actually, I don't care about them anywhere near as much as the experience. And the best things in travel really are, if not free, they cost pennies. So they're, you know, how much was the spray painting? Sure, you had to pay for the guide, but it's like a can of spray paint and it's not expensive stuff. And so usually the memories that are really great and really mark your your impression of a place have nothing to do with the physical. They're all about that kind of experiential and connection. And these, you don't cost much money. And that's what we always found so much fun planning. Uh, and I still love planning travel is you have to build a framework that is the tangible stuff. You have to stay in hotels and guides and um, restaurants and all that stuff that are going to be a good fit for the comfort level, the fanciness of the traveler but then that's just literally the the starting point it's kind of like a house where you have to have a plumbing system you have to have toilets you know you have to have a sink a kitchen all that but the thing that makes a house feel special is the decor and the ambiance and the smell of you know food in the kitchen or whatever it might be it's that the color or the texture that you remember and that stuff most of the time is just not that expensive, especially if you're creative about it. So let's take right now, like we're in, you know, we're in pandemic COVID that like, you know, for, for the few of us that are lucky, you know, the thing we miss and the, that it's probably our biggest sort of sacrifice right now is travel. Yeah. And I know you and I, as we're, you know, talking about getting you on, on the Mojo podcast here, just talking about how like just, now we're stuck. We can't travel, but weirdly, little journeys around even our local communities can be interesting. Yeah. So, what what what's the connection between that and the travel? Like, so I would say that is travel. So, travel is when you walk out the door. Like when you go to take the dog for the walk or take your kids to school. That is potentially travel. And I guess it depends how you define travel, but I would define travel as an experience that you can have the minute you leave the house, an experience that's going to be interesting and engaging. And so I think you can you can have it. You can you don't have to go very far. Yesterday, I had gone to pick up uh, plumbing fixtures. Super sexy day. Yeah. And as I was driving back home. Uh, I thought I'm going to take this different route, and I looked at Google, which is so brilliant because you can all, you always know where you are, and you can always find the options in a way that when I started in travel, you just you couldn't get to guess. And and I thought I'm going to find a way back from the town that I was getting the plumbing fixture, which is say 30 kilometers away, back to where we live. And I've driven most roads around here, but I thought for sure there 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 must be tons I you know or some that I haven't. So I found a road. 
and I drove on this road and there was the most, one of the most exquisite little churches built in 1852 out of these huge blocks of blue slate, like super rare, unusual architecture. Like you've probably never seen this church. It's called the Frost Village Church. And it's this tiny rural church and it's kind of boarded up the windows and doors. I don't think they use it or not very often. And it's, you know, the middle of January. So it was gray and white and cold and quiet and lonely. But this little church was just captivating. So I thought, you've got a bit of time, get out of the car and have like, you know, a little experience with this church. Sounds a bit weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, especially with, you know, the priest stories. But anyway. (laughs) There was no one there. So just me and my phone. So I took a few pictures and then I and I uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to see what else is around here. And then I I drove up the road a little bit, and there was this amazing barn that was falling down. And then 200 meters later was this beautiful old, you know, brick colonial house. And so in within a kilometer were these three sites, you could call them, that weren't the Duomo in Florence, and you know they weren't. Um, the country house in the hill in Tuscany. The house, they, they were very kind of close to home things, but they were they were really interesting. And so for that hour long period, forty five minutes, whatever it was, to me that actually felt it hit all the sort of buttons of excitement that I get when I travel, you know, wherever I go. You know, Butterfield and Robinson that had the tagline "Slow down to see the world." So. It's kind of like that you're saying, yeah. like when you step out the door, it's it's you don't have to be in Tuscany to have a travel moment. It's almost yeah. uh, it's, it's 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 an attitude. It's a mindset thing. Like, yeah, it's the, it's the 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 frame of mind that you're in, and and I, I agree with you. I think slow down to see the world is like the absolute best slogan um, or line of any travel company. It just hits the nail right on the head. And that's usually the problem we have when we're at home. We move too quickly. So we are in production mode, taking kids to you know skating practice. We're in production mode, going grocery shopping. We're in production mode, doing all these things that we're so used to doing that we've kind of forgotten the charm of doing them. And we just want to get them done. We want to get to work. We want to you know crank through the day. And that's totally fine, but this is where travel or vacation, and I think for many people, vacation would mean travel, is so valuable and so brilliant because it forces us to put ourselves in a different frame of mind, which is slow down, change the pattern, and see if you can experience the world you know, differently. And I think that can be walking at your door and going for a walk just as easily as it can be flying to Japan and going for a walk there. Which seems very far away right now. Which seems very far away. (laughs) Hey, so totally shifting gears here. Uh, I think that we have a huge following on our podcast, by the way. So I'm sure... (laughs) I'm sure there's people out there with their families because now they're in family lockdown mode, a lot of them, and they're working yeah. from home. Their kids may be doing school from home. Um, kind of a, a, a parallel to that is what you did a couple of years ago. You, your wife, two kids that were what? They were about 10, 8 at the time. Uh, yeah, 8 and 10, yeah. 7 and 9, 8 so and 10. You, you did the, the thing that we hear people do, but you did it, which is travel around mm-hmm. the world as a family. like. Yeah. Unpack that a little. Like, how does that happen? How did that happen? Well, <laughs> would you I mean, recommend it? It, it, uh, it was an idea, both my wife and I just have travel in our blood. And I think everybody has travel in their blood in some way. But for us, travel is kind of always simmering to boiling over. So we need to travel a lot. We just, we love it. And so ever since we met, both of us are like that. And so it doesn't take much convincing to get the other person to go somewhere, wait for the weekend, travel anywhere. And so kind of as soon as we had kids, we started dreaming of this idea where we would unplug from our conventional world and unplug from all the patterns that I was mentioning before, those sort of production patterns, 
And we would just like bugger off, go have fun, travel around the world with our kids, teach them all sorts of life lessons and things they might not learn and expose them to all sorts of beautiful places that we had enjoyed. And so this dream kind of floated around for a while, but it is, at least on the surface, it's tricky. It is expensive. It takes time. It takes planning. It takes resources of every kind. And it seemed for a number of years like it was kind of going to be impossible. But the itch kept growing. And about, I don't know, three years ago, three and a half years ago, we, we realized that we actually we had to figure out some way to do it. And we'd been you know, slowly saving. And so we kind of got to a point where we both needed a, a break and a shift from what we were doing work-wise. And we had saved like just enough to do this big adventure. And, and so we thought, man, if we do not do it now, we'll never do it. So uh, I quit my job and my wife had left hers just maybe six months or so, maybe a year before. And we rented our house and we took off. And when we landed, so we flew to Japan and we were basically ready to go for a year. And when we landed in Japan, I think that was the only flight we had booked. We had maybe one domestic flight in Japan booked. And we had a notion of what we wanted to do. And that notion was pretty abstract. It was like Asia for three months and then maybe Europe for two months and then maybe, you know, South America. And and that was really it. And so we just jumped. And of course, as always happens with travel, as with most things in life, um, once you jump, you realize that actually you know, you've got some wings you didn't realize you had, you have some courage, you, you know, that had been asleep. And our kids were, as I think all kids are programmed to be, were amazing, because they just didn't get fussed about much stuff at all. And so we took off and ended up traveling for just under a year. And we we're in, I don't know, 16 or 17 countries. And some places we stayed for a longer time and tried to set some temporary routes so the kids wouldn't feel like they were totally nomadic. And other places we moved through really quickly. And it was it was just mind-blowing. I mean, it really, really was extraordinary. And I think we're just only now, I mean, only now we're actually going through the photos. Yeah. <laughs> and as we go through the photos, we're actually, for the first time since we had the experiences, we're actually beginning to digest the experiences. If you had advice for that family out there, what would it be if they want to consider something like that? One, one, one or two little nuggets. Simple advice would be, if you want to do it, then do it. Like the money side, I'll address that because there, there may be people thinking, oh my God, this guy must have like a trust fund or something like or so much money in the bank. Dude, I thought and you did. That is abs- <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely... <laughs> Not well, I had to pay you a lot to get on this podcast, yes. so right yes. off the bat, that depleted things. And no, we, we had we had like a very you know modest let's put it this way the amount of money that we spent for a year of traveling around the world for four people was less money than what it cost us to live in Toronto as a family of four, and I would say it was about 30% less, so that's kind of crazy when you think of it so yeah, it cost yeah. us 30 percent less to travel around the world than it did to work in our jobs now yes it's true we had no income coming in or we had rent from our house which uh, actually covered quite a chunk but the we had to wrap our minds around that being a reasonable and feasible thing to do and i think that is the probably the best advice that i could give someone who's thinking about it is disregard the expectations that others have of you or disregard the expectations that the pattern of your life might have on you. And, you know, all the people who say that's crazy, you know, why are you leaving your job? It's going to cost a fortune. Um, You have to kind of silence those inner and outer skeptics because they're not much fun to travel with. And the reality is once you go, most places are cheaper to live than where most people actually live and work. Like spend some time in 
Indonesia, and it's a lot cheaper than you know yeah, yeah, yeah. living in a two bedroom apartment in Toronto. Tell me this. So in our podcast, we did the rabbit hole five. It started out as a rapid five, but it never ended up being rapid. So, so it's the rabbit hole five. Quick question, maybe mm-hmm. long answer. What's the worst experience in your travel that actually maybe turned out to be fun? The worst experience? Oh, man. Um, well, I'll tell you one of the worst, one of the scariest. I was guiding a trip in Nepal a long time ago. And the way that it would work was before the travelers or the clients came, as guides, we would go and we would kind of run through the trip at high speed and you'd visit all the hotels, you'd you know meet the, the hotels and make sure that everything was all set. And it was usually pretty uneventful and you just kind of go and have fun and then the trip would start. And I was doing this trip in Nepal, which I'd never been to. And it was the first time in about a year that this company had run a trip in Nepal and so we got there and we're racing through and we got to uh, this place that was way up, kind of getting near Everest Base Camp. So really up high. And this is right at the time of, remember that book, Into Thin Air? Yeah, yeah, yeah. John yeah. Krakauer yeah. wrote the story of climbing Everest and everything goes bad. It's kind of a crazy, tragic Bunch story. Of people died. So that had happened maybe three or four years before. And, and this area we were at was kind of hiking up the exact same trail that they had hiked up. And so we're kind of getting nearish base camp. And we were the last stop of the itinerary was sort of the highest village that you can reasonably get to called Namche Bazaar. And in my notes, it said we were staying at, I want to say something like the Rainbow or the Golden Rainbow Hotel. Panorama, maybe that Panorama. <laughs> I like Golden Rainbow. Let's call it Golden Rainbow. <laughs> it sounded amazing. And we were really excited because most of the hotels up there were pretty basic. This is, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And so we were really looking forward to this brand new hotel. And we hike for the day and we get up to this town and we get to the village and I start asking around, you know, where is this panorama hotel? And so, you know, people are pointing and we walk out of town, we go up even higher and we're literally walking across this plateau. And there's nothing there. And I stop and I ask another person and say, you know, where is the Panorama Hotel? And the guy points to literally a pile of dirt and a little cinder block building that was about the size of, I don't know, you know, a garage and a couple guys digging. And he said, it's right there. And he's got this big smile on his face. And we look at each other and we're like, oh, you got to be kidding. So we walk over and these guys are digging a hole and they are so excited to welcome us to the Panorama Hotel, which they assure me <laughs> is going to be ready in 10 days. And I'm like, you've <laughs> got to be kidding. Like we have 20, you know, high octane New Yorkers coming here. They're going to skin us alive. And yeah, so we, you know, make our way back down and we end up I mean, up this hotel is not built. And there is the hotel is literally not built. Okay. Literally not built. And and it, it, the hotel is a pile of dirt and a little cinder block building and nothing. No beds, no like no windows, no doors. And and so we had to kind of find somewhere else, which we did. And it all worked out, you know, it all worked out fine. But it was to this day I'm like, god, you've got to do a little bit of planning because if you arrive at the Panorama Hotel, of your dreams, wherever it may be, and you haven't done the research and you haven't called ahead to say, why don't you just take a photo? Just send me a photo just so I can see what it looks like today. If you don't go to that extra little step of planning before your trip, then um, you're kind of setting yourself up for drama and pain. And uh, it's just not fun. Unless that's your thing, you know, (laughs) just a little bit of drama. Unless that's your thing. Um, Unless that's your thing. I would like you told me a story, but maybe it's too long ago. We can maybe do it as an extra bonus, but your Bali scam story. Oh, when I got scammed? Yeah. Come on. Travel's often about being a sure, bit, sure. you know, the con artist. Sure, sure. And now you being Mr. Pro. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you, <laughs> I'll try to tell it quickly because it, it, it can go on for hours. So, so this happened uh, just over a year ago when we were living in Bali. And, and so I'll preface it by saying, as I did, you know, as I do now, as I did that, I kind of feel like 
it's not that I want to brag about being a great travel planner, but I've done a lot of travel planning. I've been a lot of places. And so if someone gives me a challenge that relates to travel, deep down, I'm thinking I can totally fucking do this. Like I'm a samurai. There's nothing you can throw at me. I can do it. And so I got a, out of the blue, I got a call in November of last year, 20 or 2019, a year and a bit ago. And it was the personal assistant to a billionaire Singapore businesswoman who is a, a business owner. She's got a bunch of hotels and fashion businesses. And I had uh, been speaking with her daughter about doing a consulting project. Nothing had ever happened and, and it, was, it was just going nowhere. So I'd kind of put it out of my mind. And then out of the blue, I got a call from the personal, you know, the secretary, the personal assistant of the mother. And this uh, fellow said, um, you know, Mrs. I'll call her Mrs. J. Mrs. J would like to speak with you. She's got a project that we think you'll find very interesting. And, um, you know, are you available for a call tomorrow? So this is now Sunday night. And I said, of course. So Sunday night rolls around and I have a phone call with Mrs. J who explains that she's just bought a, a very well-established printing company, book publisher, and she wants to do a series of books about the places in Indonesia that are really off the radar and kind of gritty but interesting. And she's done some research on me, and she's heard about me from her daughter, and she knows that I like to do a bit of photography, and I like to do a bit of writing, and that I like to do research. And that it seems like the kind of challenge that you know I might be able to do. So I'm listening to this woman speak, and I'm just nodding my head. I'm thinking, I am going to hit this one right out of the park. I'm very enthusiastic. And so she got really enthusiastic and said, you know, how soon can you go? And I said, well, I said, I could be on a plane tomorrow morning at 9. And she said, great, then let's do it. And so I said, great, send me a contract just so everything's clear, because I want to make sure I meet your expectations. And she said, perfect. So that night, later that night, or maybe early, early the next morning, now Monday morning, she sends me a contract. And it's it's kind of like a bit hack, but you know it's fine. And so this all is happening really quickly. So I get the contract, and I pack a bag so that I can fly to from Bali to Jakarta, which is about an hour or two hours, and spend a few days researching these very sort of places I've never even heard of, this little island, this fish market in Jakarta. And so I can do kind of a preliminary, like a test run and take some photos and write it up so that it's like a pitch for this book project. And she kind of wants to, you know, see how I perform. So I'm thinking I've got to, you know, strike while the iron's hot. And I pack an overnight bag, like a tiny little backpack. And I call a taxi, which is a scooter. And I'm on the back of the scooter at like seven o'clock in the morning, going to the airport through the busy streets of um, Denpasar, Bali. And I'm literally signing the contract on my phone, thinking, this is amazing. I am amazing. This is going to be amazing. I get to Jakarta and there's some guys there to meet me. And there's a bit of, it's all happened quickly. So there's a bit of confusion. I've got to get a bit of money to pay for the guide for the day. And that's not unusual when you're doing research trips and they happen, things happen quickly. So I get some money, I give it to the guy and he escorts me to the car and driver. So I jump in and the driver speaks no English, but I know that my first stop is this fish market in Jakarta. So but just, you the chose market. this place or they chose this place, the fish market. They chose this place. Okay. They, they chose this place. Okay. Yeah. And so I get to the fish market, I leave my backpack, you know, with my passport and computer and everything, I leave it in the car and I grab my camera and I do what I do, which is like go, you know, jump right into the deep end of this fish market and figure it out. And I spend probably like four or five hours in incredible heat and humidity, um, sweating like crazy, walking through this market and... There's no one there who looks anything like me. It is Indonesian fishermen, and it's all business, no tourism, and it's smelly, and it's gritty, and it would be, I think for some people, would have been kind of scary 
because I was so out of place and literally the fish out of water. But all I'm thinking is this is my element. Like this is when I do my best work. So I take photos and anyway, have a great day. They drop me off. The driver is waiting for me at the end of the day, takes me to my hotel, which has been booked. But there's been a bit of confusion about the hotel booking. So I've got to, I've got to pay for the hotel up front. And meanwhile, throughout the day and that evening, the personal assistant is in regular contact with me to make sure that you know I'm happy and I have everything I need. And he's explaining that, you know, if I can send my invoice with my banking information right away, then he'll send, you know, payment for my my fees, my time and expenses right away. So, of course, I send my invoice right away. I send my banking information for my Indonesian bank account and I go to bed and I wake up the next morning. The driver's there again. And this time we're going out to a bunch of islands that are off the coast of Jakarta that I've never even heard of. And I get dropped off by the driver who speaks no English. And I'm met by some other guy who speaks no English. And I'm put on a boat with it's sort of like a small ferry and or taxi boat with a bunch of people who don't speak any English. And I just get on and I, I give them this little piece of paper that shows where I'm supposed to go. So I get off on this tiny island that's about the size of a couple of football fields. And I'm the only person that gets off the boat. And when I step off the boat, there's this long pier, and it kind of feels like Fantasy Island because there's a woman standing on the pier, and she's got a tray with cold refreshment, cold drink, and a cold towel, and she's got this big smile, and she takes my little piece of paper, and she speaks no English, but she sort of gestures like, you know, wait, wait. So I, you know, just kind of wait, and it's getting pretty hot. And I start, as I'm waiting, I don't really, I think I'm waiting for another boat to pick me up and a guide, but it's a bit unclear. And now I can't reach the personal assistant. He's not answering his phone. And, you know, time goes by, it's 9.30 and then it's 10 and then it's 10.30. And I decide to walk around this little island, which is basically a resort. And there's no one staying there. And it's probably, you know, built in the 70s or something. And it's a little bit long in the tooth. And it's super weird. Everything about it is weird. There are these giant lizards that keep like skittering all, all you know, all around me. And, and it sort of smells a little funny. And the light is kind of just it's bright, but it's a little cloudy or misty. And I walk around the island and, and in, a, in a loop. And as I'm walking around, I just start getting this feeling that something is not right. And I get back to my starting point. And by the time I'm back at my starting point, I'm thinking, how do I know that this is Mrs. J? Like, this is, I, I can't be sure. So I, I get on my phone and I start looking up videos to see if I can hear her voice to see if it matches. And I can't find any videos. And so finally, I call the daughter to find out, you know, like, is this thing, like, where's your mother, um, who, when I had spoken with her, was shopping in London, and this is like a day before, and so the daughter doesn't answer, and I call again, and she finally calls me back, and my first question to her is, where is your mother? Because I have been told the day before that the mother's in London shopping, and she says, Oh, she's just, she's here in Singapore. And all of a sudden my stomach just drops. And I think I just said, Oh shit. And I hung the phone up and, uh, and actually before I hung the phone up, she said, uh, she said, where are you? And I said, I don't know. I'm on some little Island, you know, off the coast of Jakarta doing some photo shoot and research for your mother. And she said, Oh, that's a scam. And I'm like, what? And so apparently this is a very well-established scam, and it's someone who has kind of trolled through the family Instagram or address book, and they've been calling freelancers and hooking them or trying to hook them on this crazy scam. And so I hang the phone up, and, and then I'm thinking, I have got to get off this island. And there is no way. No one speaks English. There are no boats. There's no ferry. And it's starting to get super hot and I start to sweat. And then I'm thinking, what's the angle here? Like, 
they've got my bank information and my passport's in the hotel that they booked for me. So um, I call a friend and I transfer all my money out of the bank account to him. I call the hotel and tell the manager to get my stuff. But I'm still stuck on this island and I'm thinking, am I going to be kidnapped? Are they going to kill me? Like, what the hell is going on? So I start trying to wave fishing boats down that are about like 100 yards offshore so they can't hear me. And every time I wave, they just wave back and they smile and keep on going. And I don't want to start yelling and screaming because maybe the people on the island, like this nice woman who gave me the refreshment, you know, the welcome drink, maybe they're in on the whole thing. And, you know, what if I raise alarm? Like, then what happens to me? So I am, I'm getting more and more sweaty. And time's going by and I, I'm, I'm, I call my wife. I'm like, babe, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'm just going to try to get off the island. And so I hang the phone up again. And then I see this boat and it looks like a police boat coming to the island. So I, I walk over to the pier and the, there are like five or six, you know, coast guards and police who get off this boat. And they're getting the picture taken in front of the, there's a big sign for the resort. And it was totally random. They were just there for this photo opportunity. But I knew that it was my chance to get off the island. So I just jumped in the boat. And they're trying to get me off the boat. And, and I'm shaking my head. And they don't speak English. And I don't speak Indonesian. And everyone's confused. And the woman who gave me the, the welcome drink is, is wondering why I'm not staying for my free lunch. And I'm like, I'm not getting off this boat. Anyway, um, I finally convinced these, these Coast Guard's cops, they realize that I'm not going to get off the boat. And they're sort of confused, but they agree to take me back to Jakarta. So they take me back to Jakarta. And I'm expecting, you know, the cops will be there and, and I'll, you know, catch this person, this scammer. And instead, they offer me a cigarette and, you know, wave goodbye. And so I'm like, I'm getting out of here. So I <laughs> did you the take the cigarette? Did you take, did you take the cigarette at that moment? I, I should have taken a cigarette. I needed it. <laughs> I needed a drink. And so I, uh, I, I got back to the hotel, grabbed my stuff. And, and as soon as I had my stuff uh, from the hotel, I knew that at least I wasn't going to get killed or kidnapped. And, and I flew back to Bali. And, uh, and I, I never found out, I tried to follow up with the quote unquote personal assistant who, uh, unsurprisingly didn't return my calls and unsurprisingly, um, were not, I was, I was trying to play macho big guy, like, you know, you're going to be in so much trouble when, you know, the authorities find out and they just went silent. And so why they were scamming me was it for the the little bit of money that I got out of the bank machine to pay for the driver maybe but it was pretty elaborate and I don't know what the end game was but there was several months later an article in uh, vanity or I found out about several months later an article in vanity fair about a indonesian uh con man who is incredible at impersonating voices and who has been running this incredible racket all around the world and has been scamming people in Hollywood and you know Europeans. And there's actually a podcast about it, which I haven't listened to. And so I don't know for sure, but it sounds all the indications are that I was scammed by this ultimate scammer who still, as far as I know, has gone free. So it's the first time I've been, as far as I know, scammed, but I was royally totally completely scammed <laughs> so now i don't trust anybody do you know what the end game was is it your bank I account no i have no or idea it's just like a thrill of throwing people on these jaunts that... well if it was the same person uh and it's called like the scam queen of indonesia or this the scammer has a name i can't remember the something queen and um, so if it was the same person alt- I, I presume it was a money thing uh, because I, I never heard any stories of people getting injured, but you know why why they went through it all so this elaborate plan for so little money it just it left me with this weird feeling that maybe there was some other angle, but I have no idea I don't think I'll ever know, but uh, it was a really good lesson 
a good life lesson in even when you think you're total like hot shit, you, you don't know. Like you're ever, don't get too big for your boots. Don't think you're too smart, too clever, too experienced. Um, and if it smells funny and if it sounds too good to be true, then pretty good chance. Just like that, that lottery yeah. ticket I bought the family. Yeah. <laughs> Question. We're in an era completely different. That story is so freaking awesome. Um, I'm going to go bring it back to a basic thing. Let's talk about dressing for flights. Are you a yeah. sweatpant guy or business casual? What's, what's your... Uh... I am not a sweatpant guy. I don't travel with sweatpants. Um, primarily because most places I like to go are kind of hot and humid. And sweatpants in hot and humid places get pretty disgusting. <laughs> So I am a very light traveler. For the year we were away, I had a tiny carry-on um, that I had to share with uh, my wife and kids. So I only had about two-thirds of it. So I travel uh, to be comfortable, but I also travel not – I don't want to look like a total slob. Um, up until the age of like 28 or 29, I would always wear a tie traveling. Because I had this theory that if you were friendly and you looked respectable and you wore a tie, that you might get an upgrade. And I actually did in the in the before they got the airlines got clever. Um, I actually it did it worked. I got a number of upgrades. But uh, I don't wear a tie. I don't wear a sports jacket. I usually wear um, dress shirts because they always look kind of respectable. And from a practical standpoint, even when they get really dirty and stinky they still look pretty good in a way that a t-shirt or a pair of sweatpants do not. That's good advice. Wear the dress shirt and roll up the sleeves. Yeah. Uh, question for, for an object or souvenir that you've picked up that's super memorable in your travel jaunts. I tend to remember places by photography, but also by physical objects. So I'm a complete uh, pack rat when I travel and I will find a way to bring back anything that I happen to fall in love with and that could be an armoire from South India um, it could be you know carpets from Morocco um, could be a prayer wheel from Bhutan um, all things that I brought home and, and I don't know that I could identify a single thing that is the most important to me um, they all kind of are because every single thing, whether it's a shell or a piece of furniture or art uh, or some found object, they are, the physical object, when I see it back home, it instantly connects me with the moment and the place and often the people that I was interacting with when I travel. So uh, any object that I pick up when I'm away is incredibly valuable for me and meaningful and important, but I couldn't boil it down to a single one. So, okay. You could only do one more trip outside of the country you're in now. Let's just say one last trip. One last trip. I mean, that's a really tricky question. <laughs> a little bit like what's the favorite place you've ever been? Um, which is an impossible you know, which of your children do you like better type of question. But I would have to say, and I know this is a country you know and love, I'd have to say probably India, which I've been to a few times. And I love because it is endlessly, eternally baffling. The beauty of it is baffling and incomprehensible. The human condition and everywhere on the spectrum, extreme poverty, something in between, and extreme wealth, it's all there. But it's just, it's captivating. And the thing that I most love about India is the, the spirit of the people. And there's this uh, openness and this just sense of uh, contentedness may be a bit rich because I'm sure there are a lot of people who, aren't, who would rather be in different situations. But there's an acceptance. Mm -hmm. of where they are in life, you know, physically, financially, and in a way that in, especially in the developed world, we're so resistant 
to our station and our place in life. We always want like a bigger house. We, you know, we, we feel like we deserve more. We should get more. And in India, there's more of an acceptance of this is my life. And because you have so many people and you have such thick and rich history and culture, and because it's so foreign to what we know, it's like this knot that you can never untie, but it's endlessly fun to try and to fiddle with. So I always you know, say to people, India is like the triple PhD of travel. Yeah. You, you're, you're never going to nail it. And like a triple PhD, you're probably never going to you know, finish it. <laughs> it or finish it. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's, it's funny. India for me, the thing that strikes and it goes way back uh, for me, but me, it was the odors. Like, mm-hmm. and I can remember like being on a bus, an urban bus going somewhere and just, or on a, tra- you know, you, you had the smell of like sweat because you're packed in there. You have yeah. the smell of heat, which has a smell, the diesel of the polluting bus, right? But then you'd have this woman in her sari with her, like, you know, jasmine flowers as part of her, her, you know, her costume or dress that would give a nice hint of like a little sweet. It was just like this, yeah. this mix of like odors all the time. That's it. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a sensory punch in the face, nonstop. Like you're like as a traveler visiting, you're kind of like a little punching bag. In India, it's just like. <laughs> throwing you one after the other these really hard-hitting smells sounds ideas um you know visuals and the i've said to friends <laughs> trying to explain india uh i i've said the best things i've ever seen in my life have been in india the most beautiful things the most exquisite things you know people places landscapes and the most upsetting things smelly disgusting incredibly upsetting revolting i've seen in india and i've usually seen those things within the same minute (laughs) and it's that unrelenting toggle between good bad beautiful ugly you know rich poor um sweet sour that is to me so so remarkable about india and you do find contrast and variety in any place you go for sure but it's the the thickness of it, the unrelentingness of it in India, that is is so totally mesmerizing for me, and it's the thing that drives me when I travel is that quest to try to understand the place and to try to get under the skin and to feel what it's about. And in India, you just never even get close. You know, you get these little glimpses. But it's it's uh, the complexity of it is for some incredibly off putting, but for me it's wildly intoxicating and appealing. Last question from the rabbit hole here, believe it or not. Uh, what advice would you give yourself, your seventeen year old self? I say seventeen because I'm using this to like give advice to my eldest son. He was 16, now he's 17. So, but let's say you're talking to yourself, your 17 year old self. What advice would you give? Hmm. So, this is like you're talking about general life advice. Yeah. But obviously, you have probably some lens through the travel thingy. But yeah, jeez. Uh, I guess the number one thing, if I had to really boil it down, would be don't underestimate the value and importance and impact of fun. And I mean that in the way that as we grow up and get older, and certainly in that kind of 18, 20, 21 year old zone, we shift from having had a tremendous amount of fun as kids and you know then in university and to being slowly, subtly programmed by our environment to be less focused on fun and more focused on things like money or having a house or stability. And obviously, I don't want to take away from the importance of those things, but fun often takes a backseat as 
people are moving into adulthood. And I think that's a total shame because if you, if you let fun maintain kind of a high priority, then you're going to be happier. And if you're happier, you're going to do better things. And I would say, you know, that lesson of have fun was really uh, kind of drilled into me when I was at Butterfield and Robinson and George and Martha Butterfield, who will, I will be forever in debt to the guidance they gave me and the example that they provided that if you have fun and you're serious about your fun and not just, you know, frivolous and selfish about it, but if you're serious about your fun and you pursue your fun in a kind of professional way that you can, you can actually either make whatever career you want fun or you can um, maintain a kind of degree of happiness the whole way through whatever life throws at you. That's pretty deep, man. that's awesome that was fun uh look charlie thanks man thanks for jumping on the old mojo moments podcast totally my pleasure totally my pleasure thank you and And, uh we're gonna have to get those king cans and drink some beer somewhere uh i know in a social distance way I know. I know. We'll do some, we'll do some local travel. Yes. Hey, thank you. Uh, that was Charlie Scott. Uh, that was our discussion around travel mojo and, uh, playing us out here is Chris Vellen, our favorite musician in the house. Thanks. Thanks, Thank you.